let's get into the message for today. We are continuing in our series on the book of John. We're going to be looking at verses 15 through 47. And uh, last week, just to recap a little bit where we are here, last week I talked about two things, about the compassion of Jesus and the clarity of Jesus. Uh, If you remember from last week, just an amazing passage uh, where John shows us Jesus specifically going to this area in Jerusalem where there were many invalids and lame, paralyzed people who were hanging out at this body of water, a pool called Bethesda. And they were there because they believed in this superstition that if they could get into the water of the pool when the water began to move and they could be the first one in the water, that an angel would heal them. Jesus knew this place well. He went there specifically because these invalids were there. That's what I believe. And it says that he saw somebody, he knew that he had been there a very long time, 38 years as an invalid. I think what we see there is the compassion of Jesus as he goes to this specific place. He finds this person who perhaps has been suffering longer than anybody else, and he heals this man who had no faith to be healed, who didn't even know who Jesus was at all, but he healed him. He showed incredible compassion. But what blows me away even more is that, as I mentioned, Jesus finds this man later on in the temple to tell him, to make sure that he knows that Jesus is the one who healed him. He tells him, stop sinning, to live a holy life in alignment with God, to think about his eternity, where that he will end up so that he will not spend eternity apart from God in hell, but that he will spend eternity with God in the new heavens and the new earth. The only instance that I found in the Gospels, and no one emailed me from last week, but the only instance in Jesus' life where somebody got healed, somebody got touched by him, and they didn't know it was him, and Jesus goes back to make sure that he knows that it was him because he wants to bring clarity. Hey, I didn't heal you just so that you can be healed and go back to your life that you had before, but I want you to know about true healing, about walking with God in holiness. And, and, and I think it's such a powerful reminder to us about how we, we are to go and to show compassion, but we show compassion in the name of Jesus. We don't just give somebody bread, but we want to give them the bread of life because there's something far more important than now. There is eternity as well. What a powerful message for, for us as we show compassion in this world and we, and we, at the same time, we show the love of Christ by declaring Christ to others. We, we carry the bread of this world in one hand and the bread of life in the other hand. The two go together. That's what happened last week in John chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. Now, in chapters 1 through, in verses 1 through 15, the Sabbath was mentioned, but like I said, I didn't go into it because there was just too much to cover there, and I said that I would be covering the Sabbath more this week. And so, but just as review here, I skipped over this last week, but the Jews said to the man who had been healed in verse 10, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you? Take up your bed and walk. And the thing that should really stick out to us there is that these religious leaders looked at this man and did not say, what? You got healed? Really? What did you get healed from? How long were you sick? You were an invalid? 38 years? What? Who is the man who did this miraculous thing who healed you? Notice the question that they asked. Who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? We can see from there where their focus of attention was. We can see right there what they found really important. Not the fact that an invalid had been healed miraculously, which which should just stop us in our tracks, but the fact that this guy was holding his mat and walking around with it on the Sabbath and that this man, Jesus, told him to do so. That's really what bothered them, this issue of the Sabbath. Now, Now, keep that in mind as we go into the text for today. So I'm going to read from 15 through 47, and then we'll come back around. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Remember, he didn't know at first until Jesus found him in the temple. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, 
but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. For the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who has sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is the word of God. Uh, that is a lot. Oh my gosh. That is a lot. Um, that is a lot of, uh, lot of verses. It, it may feel very dense. There's a lot going on here. Jesus is talking about a lot of different things. Maybe even as I was reading it, you're like, what, what, what? We're getting lost. I totally understand that. When I read it, I was getting lost too. Um, let's try to, but, but there's so much here that Jesus is talking about that is absolutely amazing. Let, let's start with this. It says in verse 16, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Now, let's get a little bit of background about the Sabbath here. Where does the Sabbath come from? It comes from the Old Testament. It goes all the way back to Genesis. And basically it was, the Bible teaches, that God created the world in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. And as a result, he told his people, he told the people of Israel, you also will work six days, and on the seventh day, you will rest. You will refrain from all work. Why? In order to honor God in order to recognize that God is the creator of the heavens and the earth, that he is the only true God. Just as God created in six days and he rested on the seventh, so we will work six days and rest on the seventh as a declaration 
that this is the God that we serve, the God of the Bible, Yahweh, the Lord. Even when they were in the desert for 40 years, eating manna that God supernaturally provided for them every day, that manna was only there for six days of the week. On the sixth day, there was twice as much manna. And God said, take that, bring it home, because the seventh day there won't be any, because I don't want you going out doing work on the seventh day. This is something that the people of Israel have been doing since the book of Exodus. The Sabbath was extremely important to the people of God, to the people of Israel. And it says here that the Jews were persecuting him because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Now, that probably means these things means more than just this one instance of healing this man and telling him to carry his mat. There were probably multiple other things that Jesus did, but they, they get lumped together and it seems like there were many things like this that Jesus was doing on the Sabbath. And because of this, they began to persecute Jesus. Now, what I want us to look here as we look through these passages is three things. I'm breaking this passage up into three sections. First, it's about the claims of Jesus, who he claimed to be. Second, about the evidence that he gives for his claims. What evidence does he provide to back up his claims of who he is? And then third, the reality, the reality actually of our own hearts, of who we are, what it takes to receive Jesus. So claims, evidence, and reality. My daughter is learning in biology right now, claims, evidence, and reasoning. I kind of stole that, and I'm changing a little bit. Claims, evidence, and reality, okay? So that's what we're going to be looking at today. Now, this passage may seem so dense, and there's so much going on here, but if I could encourage you to really do the work of unpacking this together with me, J.C. Ryle, pastor and theologian, said, nowhere else in the Gospels do we find our Lord making such a formal, systematic, orderly, regular statement of his own unity with the Father, his divine commission and authority, and the proofs of his Messiahship as we find in this discourse. It is a profound, holy, lofty passage here that Jesus um, gives us. It is a blessing that, that here he, he tells us about who he is. So we're going to first look at the claims that he gives to us. So what does he do here? as they begin to persecute him for breaking the Sabbath. Jesus, what was his response? My father is working until now, and I am working. Now, when the Jews heard this, not only did they want to persecute him, but now they wanted to kill him. Now things got ratcheted up even further. What is Jesus saying here? What, what argument, what legitimacy is he giving for what he's doing on the Sabbath? Now, we know that God, when Jesus says, my father is working until now, we know that God is working all the time. God didn't rest on the seventh day because he was tired. God doesn't get tired. God rested on the seventh day because he wanted the people of Israel to honor him, to recognize him. That's why the people of Israel rest on the seventh day. It's not that God's tired. It's not that God stops doing anything because If every seventh day God stopped doing anything at all, who's going to hold the universe together? Who's going to to keep everything in our world running under his providence, under his sovereignty? Uh, Even the ancient rabbis agreed that, no, God is working on the Sabbath. But we, the people, the people of Israel, they honored God on the seventh day and didn't work to give glory to him. And now Jesus says, because of this, because the Father is working on the Sabbath, I am also working. That's why I am working today. That's why I am allowed to work. It's okay for me to work because God the Father is working. Now, Jesus, he could have argued, he could have said, hey, you religious leaders, you've got it all wrong. There's nothing wrong with healing a man on the Sabbath. Sabbath is meant for doing good. The work that the Bible is talking about, that God is talking about is like work. It's like labor. It's like your job, not helping somebody out. What greater help is there than than helping this man who's been an invalid for 38 years? You totally have misunderstood the Sabbath. You want him to leave his mat out there? That's not work. You think his mat's still going to be there tomorrow when he goes back for it? 
Somebody else is going to be like, nice mat. Let me take that home. He could take his mat home. That's not work. That's not work. Jesus could have gone down this line of argument, but he doesn't. He doesn't. What Jesus insists is that I can work because my father is always working. Now, it's very noteworthy here that it says that the Jews wanted to kill him because of this statement. Because what Jesus is claiming here is he is claiming divinity. He is claiming that he is God. He even calls God my father. This is not what Jews did. They usually said our father. Or if they said my father when they prayed, they would say something like my father in heaven. They were, there would be some type of formality, some type of distance between them and God, not Jesus. He regularly called God my father. The Jews recognized this. They understood what he was saying. And because of this, they wanted to kill him. John even says Jesus was making himself equal with God. Friends, if anybody ever says to you, did Jesus ever actually claim to be God? John certainly thought so. The religious leaders, Jesus' enemies, certainly thought so. Enough so much that they wanted to kill him. They understood what he was saying. Jesus claimed to be God. He claimed to be one with the Father. Now, not only that, look at what he says here about him working. He says, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Look at the incredible unity that Jesus is claiming. He's saying, why am I working on the Sabbath? If you want to call that work, why am I healing? Why am I telling this man to take his mat home? Because me and the Father are one. I don't do anything apart from what I see the Father doing. What I did in healing this man, it's because the Father wanted to heal that man. What I did in telling this man to take his mat home, that's what the Father was doing. Me and the Father are one. We are so tightly bound together. We're two peas in a pod. No, we're two peas that are one pea, if we're going to get into the Trinity here. The oneness, the intimacy between him and the Father is so interwoven. We see in here the incredible obedience of Jesus the Son to the Father, but this obedience is not just imitation, like copycat, you know? Oh, my Father did this, I'm going to go do that. No, what, what, what John is talking about, what Jesus is talking about here is a sameness to their essence. There's something more mystical, something more spiritual, something more profound here. Whatever the Father does, I do, because we are one because he is God and because I am God. Jesus is claiming divinity through this oneness and unity with God. That is why he is, quote-unquote, working here on the Sabbath. Now, he also says here, the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. So the second thing here. Not only does Jesus claim this oneness and unity with the Father, Jesus says that life and judgment come through him. All life and judgment come through him. He says the Father judges no one. Wait a second. What do you mean the Father judges no one? I thought God the Father is the judge of all the earth. Absolutely, he is. But he has placed all judgment into the hands of Jesus. All life comes into the hands of Jesus. In other words, Jesus is the ultimate litmus test. Jesus is the ultimate dividing line. Everything in terms of life and judgment comes down to what you think of the person of Jesus. That's what it comes down to. It's all been placed in Jesus' hands. Later in John, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is a one-lane road, friends. And it's called Jesus. This road goes to the Father. There's no other road to get to the Father except through Jesus. If you come to Jesus and you believe in him as the Lord and Savior of all the world, that he died on the cross for your sins, you can experience forgiveness of sin and life. Life can be yours. But if you reject him as Lord and Savior, there is only judgment for you. If we come to him, we experience life. Incredible life. Something that we can experience now in this world. 
He said an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. This is, this is not something in the future. This is something now. If you hear his voice, that time is now here, you will live. Jesus says that the thief, being the devil, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus comes to give you fullness of life. But all life and judgment are through the Son. When you make Jesus your Lord and Savior, you have this fullness of life. Your sins are forgiven completely through the sacrifice of Jesus upon the cross. You are loved perfectly. You are adopted into the family of God because of Jesus if you put your faith in him. And you are loved eternally forever by God. The Holy Spirit will take up residence within you so that you can live a holy life, so that you can live in alignment with God. And this offer is there for everybody who would believe in Jesus, but it comes only through Jesus, not through any other God or religious system or any other form of salvation that the world would tout, only through Christ. He is the only way. All life and judgment come through him. He's the ultimate litmus test. Your place in this universe will be determined by what you think of Jesus. Not if you're a Democrat or Republican, not because of what school you went to or what job you have, not because of whether you're, you're Asian or you're, you're from Africa or you're from uh, South America, wherever you're from. None of those things matter. At the end of the day, your place in this universe will be determined by who Jesus is to you. Is he the son of God? the source of all life and judgment. Do you believe that or not? If you believe that, if you, you have life. If you do not, as John said in chapter 3, you are condemned already. We are born into this world. We are conceived with a sinful nature. We stand under God's judgment from the very beginning. And, and that's how we live our lives. We grow up in rebellion to God. We grow up wanting to be our own gods wanting to live our own lives apart from God. And we are already under the judgment and condemnation of God. None of us starts out as a blank slate, as a tabula rasa. We all come into this world with a sinful nature, already under the condemnation of God. But he offers us the path to life through his son, Jesus. So Jesus, he is God. He claims oneness with God. He claims to be the source of all life and judgment now in this world, in this life, but also in the life to come. In verse 28, he says, An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Not only is he the source of all life and judgment right now, that if you believe in Jesus, you will have that fullness of life. If you don't believe in Jesus, you stay in that darkness. As John chapter 1 tells us, we stay under the condemnation that we were already born into. But Jesus says that in that final day, when Christ returns also, there will be an eternal life and an eternal judgment that comes through him. Friends, this life is so short. It goes by in the blink of an eye. It's like the, the previews to a movie. Now, that doesn't even do it justice. It's like it doesn't even compare. It's like the blink of an eye compared to eternity. And Jesus says also, where you spend eternity, whether eternally with life in the new heavens and the new earth or eternally in judgment apart from God, also depends on whether you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior or not. Look here, when he says, that those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment, that doesn't mean that your salvation is earned because of good works. That where you go depends on how many grandmas you've helped across the street and how many children you've given candy to and how many homes you've built for the poor. It's not about the good things or the bad things that you've done. You can't earn salvation. That's not what he's saying there. The whole Gospel of John makes it really clear right? Even what we've seen from chapter one to now so far makes it really clear it's about 
Do you believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior or not? Only the wind of the Holy Spirit can bring new life. Somebody can be born again only through the work of God. But the works that we do in this life reveal to us what we truly believe. That's what John, that's what Jesus is saying here. If you truly believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, it will affect the way that you live. You will begin to walk in holiness, in doing good, good according to God's definition of good, walking with Him as your Lord and Savior, seeking to live a life that is in alignment with Him. These are the claims that Jesus makes. Me and the Father were one. Everything I do, it's because He's doing it. We are one. All life and judgment in this world come through me. All life and judgment for eternity come through me. These are the incredible, lofty claims that Jesus is making. He is claiming to be nothing less than God. Nothing less than This can't be taken in any other way. I've, I've referenced this before, but I think it's so useful here. C.S. Lewis, his quote again from Mere Christianity. I'll read it one more time here if you've heard this before. It says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, him being Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Friends, the claims of Jesus are so clear. So clear that the, that the religious leaders who knew the Old Testament back and forth, many who had the Old Testament memorized, understood what he was saying. He's saying he's God. He's saying life and judgment come through him. Life in this world is defined by him. Life in the life to come is defined by him. Jesus is nothing less than God. That is what he's claiming. He's not just a nice guy. He's not Mr. Rogers. He's not just a moral teacher amongst many other moral teachers. If you are exploring Christianity, if you're not a Christian, I would encourage you to think about what C.S. Lewis is saying here. He's a madman, he's a lunatic, or he's God. But he's not just a nice guy who taught some really good things. He said he's God, and that is something that must be reckoned with. These are the claims that Jesus made. Now, here's the evidence that he gives for these claims. In verse 31, he says, if I, bear, if I alone bear witness about myself, my witness is not true. There's another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Now, this is a really interesting thing here. Uh, Jesus begins to bring in the evidence here by calling witnesses to the stand, just like we do in our modern courtrooms today. We call witnesses to the stand. Jesus begins to call witnesses to the stand. Now, he says here, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. That doesn't mean that what Jesus is saying is dependent upon other people. Jesus doesn't lie. He's not lying. This is the truth. That's not what he's saying. But what he's doing is he's operating within the framework of these people who are operating under Old Testament law. And there was a law that God gave that was very, very fundamental. In Deuteronomy, Moses wrote, a single witness shall not suffice against the person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. And this didn't only apply to when somebody was being accused of something bad, but with other things as well, including a claim to who somebody is, like Jesus is making now. He's saying there, there, the people understood there's got to be two or three witnesses. You can't just say something about yourself. Jesus is operating within that framework of ancient Judaism. So he begins to call witnesses to himself. Now, he says there's one key witness here in verse 32. That's the father. That's probably who this 
another person, this other person that Jesus is saying. He's saying the Father has borne witness that I am the Son of God, that I am God. But the Father, I believe, as we look at the rest of these verses, does it through three different means, okay? So the Father is like the key witness, but uh, there are three sub-witnesses, if you will, that the Father is calling that he's using to establish the credibility, the claims of Jesus. The first one is this. The first one is John the Baptist. That's the, that's the first one here. You, verse 33 says, you sent to John and he bore witness about the truth. Jesus said that he was a burning and shining lamp. That's who he was. John the Baptist, witness number one, will you please take the stand? John the Baptist gets up there with his garment of camel hair, snacking on locusts and honey as he's up there. He is witness number one. Why? Because Isaiah prophesied that when the Messiah comes, he will be like one who is a voice crying, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. That's what John the Baptist did. He came in. He began to cry out, prepare the way, repent and be baptized, prepare the way. He pointed people to Jesus. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was the one. He witnessed to Jesus. Malachi talked about John the Baptist. At the end of the Old Testament, Malachi prophesied, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. That didn't mean literally Elijah, although some people thought that. That's why when they went up to John the Baptist, they said, who are you? Are you Elijah? Elijah didn't mean literally Elijah, back from the dead. It meant what Elijah represented, prophecy, the spirit of prophecy. John the Baptist came as a prophet onto the scene, declaring, prepare the way, repent and be baptized, behold the Son of God. John the Baptist came as a witness and he testified to Jesus. That was witness number one. Witness number one can leave the stand. Now Jesus calls up witness number two. What is witness number two? Who is witness number two? He says here in verse 36, the testimony that I have is greater than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. The very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Witness number two are the signs in the miracles that I am doing. You don't believe John the Baptist? Believe the signs. Look at all the miracles that I am doing. Believe that. This is evidence that I am the Son of God, that I am the Messiah. Do you know how many miracles Jesus did? At the end of John, he wrote that there were also many other miracles, many other things that Jesus did, were every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Jesus did so many miraculous, amazing things that the disciples didn't even bother writing them all down. There's not even, they didn't even have enough paper or ink to write it all down. If they were going to write it down, they'd be writing all day long is basically what they were saying. If we see, if you experience one miracle in your life, if you think something's a miracle, some of you go home and you will journal, right? Some of you are journalers. You will journal, 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 journal about how you, you, you went to in and out you didn't have any money, and you, you, know, you realized you had 10 bucks you left in your pocket that you washed because your jeans, you forgot them there, something like that. You'll journal, you'll write that down. Jesus did miracle miracles, so many that John says we can't even record them all. This is the evidence. Jesus says, look, you don't believe John the Baptist? Believe the miracles that I have done. Who could do miracles like this? Now, Friends, some of you, if, if you're not a Christian, you may hear that. You may go, why? come on, come on, Ulysses. Okay, I hear what you're saying, but why should I believe in this book that was written 2,000 years ago about ancient times that Jesus did all these things? Come on, your, your name is Ulysses, right? Yeah. You're named after Odysseus, right? Yeah. Do you believe Odysseus really killed a cyclops, you know, blinded a cyclops with like a spear made out of a log? Do you really believe in Scylla and Charybdis and stuff like that? Those are legends. Those are fables. I was like, no, I don't believe in that. Why, do you, why should you expect me to believe that Jesus did these miracles? Because this, is, because this is the question. How do we know anything that happened in the ancient world? How do we know anything from ancient history? Because it was written down. Because it was written down, right? And, and uh, for those of you in community group, right now we're reading Why Trust the Bible. 
it, it talks about this. Why should we believe in the Bible? Why should we believe that Jesus really did these miracles? Well, why do we believe anything from ancient history? Why do you believe Caesar crossed the Rubicon? Because nine or ten copies of Gallic Wars, nine or ten good copies of Gallic Wars tells us that Caesar crossed the Rubicon, and we believe it. We believe it. There are over 5,400 manuscripts of the New Testament, whether pieces of it or the entire book of John or other gospels or the entire New Testament, 5,400 pieces of ancient history recording down the things of the New Testament, of the early church, the things that Jesus did. Why wouldn't we believe that these miracles that Jesus did were true, that he did them? Unless we were to say, oh, come on, Caesar crossing the Rubicon is one thing, but miracles, raising the dead, you expect me to believe that? Then what I would propose to you, my friend, is that maybe there is an a priori assumption within you already that miracles cannot happen, that the supernatural cannot happen. If that's how you are making your um, uh, deduction, then if that's the case, forget God. God's a supernatural God. There's nothing to even discuss or argue about in the first place. If you've already decided that supernatural things cannot be and God, then God cannot be. Then there is nothing left to discuss. But the miracles of Jesus are attested in ancient history so profoundly. There's an embarrassment of riches of how many manuscripts there are to the life of Jesus. And they are a worthy witness to take the stand. Witness number two steps down, and Jesus calls up his third and his final witness. And he says in verse 39, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Jesus is saying the third witness is this, is the Bible. The Bible itself, the Old Testament. The Old Testament was written about Jesus. They are a witness. They testify. In Luke 22, Jesus said to his disciples, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Jesus says the whole Old Testament was written about me. It pointed forward to me. And I fulfilled everything that the Old Testament said. People have tried to number how many prophecies and foreshadowings in the Old Testament there were that Jesus fulfilled. One guy, theologian J. Barton Payne, said 574. In his life, Jesus fulfilled 574 of the Old Testament prophecies. Alfred Edersheim wrote down 456, right? This is depending on how you want to calculate, how minor of a thing, how big of a thing. He wrote 456. At the most conservative way of counting, Jesus fulfilled at least 300 different prophecies from the Old Testament. Jesus says, hey, there's nothing the Old Testament said about who the Messiah would be that I have not fulfilled. The scriptures testify to him. All these three witnesses have taken the stand. John the Baptist, the miracles and signs that Jesus performed and the scriptures themselves. There is nothing left. There is no excuse left for rejecting the Son of God. There's no excuse. God has given us abundant evidence that the claims of Jesus are valid. They are true. The claims of Jesus are verified, check, because of the profundity of evidence that Jesus has given. What else do we need? What else do we need? Maybe Maybe you're there. You're saying, Ulysses, well, what I need is I need God to just show up right now in front of me. Do a miracle. Like, make me levitate. I'll believe it. I will believe it. I would say, okay, you know, uh, God has the power to do that, but is that a reasonable request to make? Is that reasonable based on the evidence that God has already shown to us? You know, when I was a kid, I grew up playing Nintendo the original Nintendo. I had Rob the robot, if you, get, no, you guys don't know what that is. I, had, I played Nintendo, the Nintendo where you, you put in the cartridges, and then after about a couple of years, it stops working, so what you start to do is you become an expert in kicking your Nintendo and smacking it to make it work. Like That's what I grew up, those are the video games I grew up playing. And 
I had 50 Nintendo cartridges. I was a spoiled brat. Spoiled brat. I would complain and argue, asking my parents to buy me the latest video guy, you know, Legend of Zelda 1. None of this Breath of the Wild nonsense. Number one, the OG, the good stuff, Legend of Zelda. I had 50 Nintendo cartridges. Those things cost like $30, $40, $50 back in the 80s, okay? Now, what's that now? $5,000? That was expensive. Imagine if, if I was in Toys R Us with my parents and I said to them, Mom, I want that new video game. I want that new cartridge. I want that new toy. And they said, son, no, no, we, we, we can't buy that for you now. Now is not the time. And I said, if you don't buy that for me, you don't love me. You don't love me. Would that be reasonable? What would my parents say? Son, we don't love you. We don't love you. Look, think back. Take a moment. Let's be reasonable. Think back. We feed you. We clothe you. We buy you nice things. When we go on vacation, we don't leave you at home. We take you with us. You wanted a little brother? We had another baby because you said you wanted a little brother. The truth. That's why my brother exists. <laughs> we gave you a brother because you wanted one. You have 50 Nintendo cartridges at home. Could you take a moment and look at the evidence of your entire existence? And ask yourself again, do we love you? Rather than this one moment of will you, we buy you Nintendo cartridge number 51. I think that's reasonable. That's reasonable. We can say, God, I'll only believe if you give me evidence right now. If you show up to me, you, do, you make me levitate, you give me perfect teeth and great hair, you do something, I will believe in you. Is that reasonable? When Jesus has come, and the witness of the scriptures, the witness of John the Baptist, the witness of the miracles recorded more than anything else in ancient history, God has given us an abundance of evidence of why we should believe that his son is the son of God. So God, I don't know, the prosecution lets their argument rest. He lets the witnesses sit down and take a rest. The claims that Jesus made has been established by the evidence that is what I believe. Now here's, lastly, as we close here, the reality. Okay. Now this is easy to miss here, but I don't want us to miss this because I think this is one of the keys, the crux to what's going on here. Jesus can make claims. He can present this evidence. Yet still, the religious leaders ended up killing him. Most of his disciples abandoned him. The crowds in Jerusalem, thousands who were fed by him, the, 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 the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, many of them were shouting for him to be crucified in that, that day in Jerusalem. What happened? Why? Well, it says here, Jesus says, I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. What's Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying, I'm not going to, I don't care about what people say about me because I know where it comes from. It doesn't come from the love of God. He said this earlier in chapter 2 when he was up at Jerusalem and he did miracles and he, he, uh, he uh, cast the people out of the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers. All these people were praising him. We're all excited about him. Messianic fever was running high. Is this the guy? But it says that Jesus didn't entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He didn't need anybody to tell him about man, what was in mankind's heart. He knew what was in a man. He knew what people were like. He knew why people were crowding around him because they wanted an earthly Messiah, an earthly Savior to come and make their lives better, to get rid of Rome. He understood this about people, not because they truly loved God. That was what was in the heart of people. Now, keep that in mind. Now, this is what, in verse 43, that informs verse 43. He says, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? What is Jesus saying here? What, what is in a man? What is in the heart of mankind? What is Jesus saying here? 
Jesus is saying, the reason you will not receive me. Forget about all the evidence. Jesus, Jesus could present more. Who knows? God's, he could have done anything. At the end of the day, it's not about the evidence. It doesn't come down to the evidence, Jesus is saying here. What does it come down to? What's in your heart? What do you want? You want a Messiah, a Savior, a Deliverer that will give you the world you want. That's the kind of person that you will follow. And you won't follow me because that's not the world I offer you. I offer you a very different world, and it's not one that you're finding very savory. You don't want it. You want, you want a Savior who will give you everything you want in this world. You want a life of comfort and pleasure. You want glory and honor from people. That's what you want. That's what Jesus is saying to the people. That's what you want. That's what's really in your heart. That's why you won't receive me, but you receive others. Oh, yeah, we'll follow others. We'll literally follow them on Instagram, those social media influencers who, who show you how you can look great, how you can be healthy, how you can go out and explore all the exotic places in this world and do all the things on your bucket list. Oh, we'll follow them because that's the life that I want. I will follow this person. I'll follow Warren Buffett and take his advice because I want to be rich and comfortable. I'll follow him or I'll follow the, the gurus from FIRE. You know, financial independence, retire early. That sounds so good to me. I want to be fishing at 50. I'll follow them. I'll learn from them. That's the kind of savior I want. Come save me from working nine to five, five days a week. I'll follow the, the Elon Musks or the Steve Jobs. We're in Silicon Valley, right? I'll follow the people who, I, I want to be like that, sophisticated, successful. I want people to look at me and say, what an intelligent, cosmopolitan, worldly, sophisticated person, so smart, so accomplished. Look at all that he or she has done. I'll follow those people. Those are the saviors and the messiahs that I want because they give me the life that I want. Jesus is saying, at the end of the day, this is the reality. It's not about the evidence. It's about what's in your heart. <laughs> look at James and John. They exemplified this so well. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. It's such a clear picture of this. They thought Jesus was just an earthly Messiah, something real special. He can make fireballs fly out of his eyes, but he still, they didn't totally get who he was. But he's going to come and he's going to kick Rome's butt. He's going to establish a new kingdom, kind of like David did back in the day. And because we got in on the ground floor, because we're working for Jesus.com at the seed fund level, seed round, man, we are going to, he's going to give me, you know, a position, some title, because we followed him from the very beginning. We got equity in this. Jesus, make us somebody great, will you? That's why they were following him. They didn't get it. They didn't get who he was. What did Jesus say? you want to follow me, you have to be willing to be last in this world. You have to take up your cross and follow after me. You have to, you have to be willing to take up your cross, deny yourself, follow me. If you want to save your life, you'll lose it. If you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. That's what it means to really experience me, to be able to follow me, to receive me. You need to be willing to be last in this world, to be a servant of all instead of first, instead of pursuing what everybody else is pursuing. You need to understand, like, like John says in John, 1 John chapter 1, that we are sinners, that there's nothing that I can do to cleanse myself of my sin, to earn forgiveness, but except to trust in the saving work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. That is the only way to receive Jesus. It's about our heart. What kind of Savior are you looking for? Friends, if you really want to come to God, if you're exploring who God is, at the end of the day, the evidence is really important. It is powerful. It is real. But at the end of the day, it comes down to a work of God in our hearts. Can you receive this Jesus for who He is? Are you willing to follow him as your Lord and Savior? And, and it means a very different life in this world, a life of being a servant, of being last, not the first,
But Jesus says, for all who do in the new heavens and the new earth in eternity, we will receive glory and praise from God and not from people. Christians, do you find yourself having a tough time sometimes following Jesus, loving him more than the things of this world? Friends, let us have a reality check of our hearts. Are there other saviors that you're seeking in your life? Saviors of comfort and glory in this world and success and what people say about you? Or are we willing to come to Christ and say, no, I want the true savior of this world. He who died for me, who gave his life on a cross and who raised himself, who was raised from the empty tomb so that I can experience this newness of life. Let's pray together, brothers and sisters. Friends, can we stand together as we pray? There is no one, no one made the claims that Jesus did. They are astounding. They are astounding. And they are testified to by witness after witness after witness. Friends, what are you waiting for in making Jesus your Lord and Savior if you are not a Christian? Perhaps if it is your heart, I would ask you, I encourage you to come to God and to bring him in your heart. Say, Lord, God, if you're real, help me. Help my heart to see the reality of the Son of God, that you are who you say you are. Help me to to not be so enamored with this world and all the distractions of this world. Help me to be able to see and hear clearly to receive you as my Lord and Savior. Christians, brothers and sisters, a lot of you already know these things of who Jesus claims he is and the evidence of who he is, but let us come and renew our commitment to him. Let us renew our willingness to follow him as the true Lord and Savior, as the true Messiah. Let's come and let's pray together right now for a moment. Let's bring our hearts to God right now. Let's come and just invite him. Say, Lord, I want to see you as you truly are. I want to know you for who you truly are. Let's, let's come and pray for a moment before we close in worship. Let's pray together.